Hey everybody, welcome to episode 10, I believe, of uh, Berserker Medicine. Today we have a, kind of a more back to our roots episode for it. It's going to be two case studies. So I'm here with myself and Nafisa. And Nafisa is going to be on the, the chopping block this time for uh, what to do um, yeah, with these yeah. two case studies. I'm the perpetual guinea pig, but I'm ready. <laughs> Are you excited? Oh yeah, I'm so excited. Let's do it. All right. I like I like these because they're fun. You know, they get them. I get my brain kind of thinking. We're recording this on a Sunday, so I go back to uh, work tomorrow. So it's kind of just like a little brain wetter, if you will. <laughs> so, all right. This uh, first case study. Uh, bear with me because I don't have a script. I like to fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> but uh, first case study is going to be in the uh, outpatient setting. So this is Nafisa's back neck of the wood, neck of the woods here. Yeah. All right. So you have a patient on your schedule here for uh, um, chief complaint of high blood pressure. And when you walk in, you see him. He's sitting up in the chair. He's doing fine. Uh, but you see he had some lab work done last time he was here or at your clinic and he had a lipid panel done. He has triglycerides of 190, uh, LDL 150 and his HDL of uh, 40. So his total cholesterol would be like, let's just say 300. <laughs> okay. Um, you see that his blood pressure, uh, done by the nurse is, uh, is about 150 over 90 pulse is 65 and otherwise, um, vital signs are stable. Um, like I said, his chief complaint is just his uh, high blood pressure and go ahead and take it away. Sweet. Um, some things I might've missed sorry, early in the beginning. How old again? He is a 39 year old male. Okay. So 39 year old male coming in for uh, hypertension, mm-hmm. someone or myself did lab work last time, BP 150 over 90, pulse 65. Um, I was going to ask you about this. Not currently on any medications for his blood pressure. Nope. He says he's tried to diet controlled stuff in the past. Okay. Tried diet. Got it. Um, I'm going to ask you something else about this. Oh, for the uh, blood pressure for him, mm-hmm. was that his first reading? Uh, so his first reading today. Um, okay. You look back in your records and you see that the last time he was here about uh, three months ago, his blood pressure was about the same. So pretty close to the same. And uh, yeah, that's all kind of that's there. Okay, cool. So um, kind of my bird's eye view for this gentleman, um, age 39, does have uh, some hyperlipidemia going on. Um, We don't have an A1C on him. These are just things that I kind of like think about just because I feel like all of the comorbidities with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, I kind of think of them separately, but also uh, in one big bucket as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, BP for me... Well, for him, excuse me, elevated and not at goal. So he is less than 60. So goal for him, I'm already thinking off the top of my head. I think it's what 140 over 90, probably trending down to, I feel like in the next couple of years, 130 over 90, but, um, or 80, mm-hmm. but anyway, 
Um, pulse is fine and otherwise he's stable. So for him, I think one of the big, really big, important things to do in the, uh, office setting is number one, I'd go and retake the blood pressure after he's kind of allowed himself to be, you know, sitting in the room, um, kind of not the hustle and bustle of depending on where you work, like the patient coming back, maybe the patient is running late to their appointment. They're sprinting, you know, to, to make it in on time et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I always think that that's good to have on hand. Uh, just cause I like to know, Hey, after sitting here for 30 minutes, kind of cool, calm and collected, what are you running at? Um, and then in the setting that he's tried lifestyle modifications. Um, and I, of course we naturally don't know like how long and how adherent maybe he was to those medic or, um, lifestyle modifications, or if he has any barriers to them. Uh, my next, um, kind of thought is, do I want to start this gentleman on anything? What would I want to start? Uh, if so, Mm -hmm. um, no other, uh, past medical history. Uh, Not that you see on your results. And when you ask him that same question, he says, not that he knows of. Um, so, and he is a Slightly obese white male who has never okay. smoked. All right. So slightly obese, uh, Caucasian male. He's never smoked. Um, my main things for him, obviously I do my, you know, physical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, I feel like in these instances, even though you're coming in for hypertension, I just like mm-hmm. to, I feel like we were taught to always be thorough and do a full head to toe, um, exam or focus if we need to, but, um, so for him, his would probably, for my first time seeing him, it'd probably be a full exam. So I have everything from uh, baseline and because he's 39. Um, let's see, lab wise. So some things I would want to know about him or I would want to know his, either if we could do a point of care glucose, that would be great. But if I, I would make sure I had a, got an A1C on this gentleman just to see. And the reason why I am even thinking that is because, you know, obese male, in the setting that maybe, um, he will have some, um, uh, if he's trending towards being pre-diabetic or diabetic, it doesn't necessarily change what I'm going to do or what I'm thinking about prescribing maybe for this gentleman, but it definitely is something I want to consider. Um, uh, let's see, A1C, his lipids are elevated, but he's just coming for hypertension. Um, so for him, <laughs> I'd want him to get a home blood pressure cuff, which I say that. And I realized in my two weeks of maybe like a month more or less of work is that that's actually, it's easy to accomplish, but I think it's also challenging to accomplish depending on uh, where you're working. And why do you think um, um, Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's just challenging for a couple of things, right? Like, so number one is um, the clinic I work at I can physically walk out and prescribe and, and hand you an automated like blood pressure cuff that are validated or that is validated. Um, but other times, like I've been in rooms and you've, I've had to tell patients like, Hey, I want you to start taking your blood pressure at home. And sometimes providers and, you know, like probably even myself early on as a student would just leave it at that. And like, never thought to, I mean, sometimes you maybe forget to ask the question like, Oh, do you have access to a blood pressure cuff? Can you afford this blood pressure cuff versus just being like this, you're going to need to buy this blood pressure cuff. Cause I want to uh, check your measurements 
Oh, wait, were you asking me why it's challenging for them or why I want him to get the blood pressure cuff? <laughs> why it's challenging. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Before I get on my, my soapbox <laughs> about barriers. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, especially in the population that I see, it's like, can you afford this blood pressure cuff? You know, um, are you able to spend the 30, 40, 15, however much, you know, they cost this month, uh, mm-hmm. only for me to then say, I want you to, you know, take these readings, you know, um, I, during my cardiology rotation, we would tell people spread it out during the day. You know, I don't want you to take them back to back and you're explaining all these things to them, but you know, are they going to do it? That's also another thing, you know, is this person, do you feel they're motivated enough or have you motivated them enough as a provider to go, say, this is really important because I don't want to start you on a medication that like, you know, maybe you don't need, right. Just looking at one number and saying, Oh, it's not, not at goal. You know, I, I want to prescribe you medication, but, um, so I, yeah, so I think that's why I think it's sometimes there's barriers to it. Um, Sometimes people will be like, well, I take it at Walmart at the machine. And I'm like, that's great. But I would like, I'm trying to live my life in a way where I can empower my patients to like physically see the value of like going and having their own blood pressure cuff. Sure. Um, but yeah, but um, so I think that I'll run into roadblocks with that. Or you run into a roadblock where someone will say, well, I'll say, do you have a cuff at home? And they'll say, yeah. And um, I'll say, okay, do you use it? No, no one taught me how to use it. So then you have, that's another barrier, right? So then you're like, okay, bring it in next, next, uh, next appointment. We'll compare it with our machines and, um, we'll make sure you know how to use it. So I've seen a little bit of everything, but, um, so for him at 39, you know, young enough to where I think he can be motivated to also have his own cuff, um, and hopefully get his own cuff or one will be provided for him. If he comes to my clinic, I guess. And, uh, and then, uh, so that'd be one thing I'd like to see, but in the setting where you said we only have one other reading on this gentleman, right. From before, uh, just from like three months ago. Okay. So it was like, it was like his yearly, it was his yearly physical. Okay. So ideally, right. Like before I started a medication, I'd want, uh, three different sets from, you know, different, different times, different environments. And if I see this gentleman's constantly elevated, um, and with his lab work, I'll start considering, um, medication, but for him, if I were to, um, let's say I, you know, convince him that I want him to take cuff or go, go buy one, you know, as far as what I would want to prescribe for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so for him, he said white kind of obese male. Um, I go to either like an ACE, an ACE inhibitor or um, an ARB just cause I feel like wanting to be protect the kidneys cause the kidneys are, you know, a window to everything is kind of high on my list. Um, Typically, right, especially when you refer back to like JNC uh, 7 or JNC 8 guidelines for hypertension, um, typically if you're an African-American, that's when we start thinking of like our thiazides or our calcium channel blockers that have just kind of been proven and like, or suggestive in other trials to be more effective in those populations. Mm -hmm. Um, But him being, you know, a Caucasian male kind of opens me up to a world of options. Um, And I feel like having that discussion with this patient of like starting low and going, 
start low, go slow, and then work our way up as we need to, um, would be pretty important. So, um, I feel like I've been doing some reading and we kind of talked about this offline, but I'm really into ARBs right now and trying to do my clinical gestalt. So that's Mm -hmm. what I'd like. So that's kind of what I would lean towards for him. Um, and then obviously doing that reinforcing kind of lifestyle modifications, diet modifications, because clearly, you know, we, we have room to improve off lifestyle, just based off maybe our, the cholesterol numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, so just reinforcing that along the way and kind of, you know, um, not being like, Hey, I'm going to give you this blood pressure medication and it's going to make all your numbers on your labs correct themselves. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my thought for, for him. Good. Um, so as far as medication goes, you are saying that you would start with an ACE or an mm-hmm. ARB. Yep. An ACE or an ARB. And go yeah, from I'd, there. Yeah. I start with an ACE or an ARB. Um, what do you think would be your initial dose for this guy? Blood pressure uh, in the 150s. You can see that it's probably relatively around that, even because yeah. of the readings that you do have. Yeah. Um, I think if I were to go with uh, Losartan, so that's an ARB, I'd like to start, like I was saying, lower. Mm-hmm. So maybe starting him at uh, 25 milligrams, which Losartan, um, this is just kind of diving back in books and reading and listening to things, can be to be at its most optimal dose twice a day. But I think with this gentleman, I don't have to dose it twice a day. So the reason why would be because it has a shorter half-life. And so, you know, to get that full long lasting effect, dosing it twice a day might be ideal. But if I prescribed my starting dose, Losartan, 25 milligrams once a day, um, bring him back um, at his follow-up period, with hopefully his home blood pressure logs that we can look at together to see if we also need a titrate up. Um, then at that point I can say, okay, you're kind of still not at goal. Again, reinforcing diet and exercise. I want you to take that same medication, but twice a day. Right. So hopefully not having to increase his pill burden, but, um, but having the flexibility to do so if need be, I think would be kind of ideal for him. Um, right. Yeah. And then because he's coming in for hypertension, he would not leave without getting stuck by the lab. So let's see for him. Also, I think I'd want to do, um, let's see what he has. Uh, we already did lipids. I said his A1C already, just cause I want that just on file for where he's mm-hmm. at while we're doing all this, uh, the workup for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to do I feel like a UA just so I get a urinalysis. I could see his, uh, um, what was it? Microalbuminemia. Yep. So you look at his protein and creatinine probably. Yeah. Protein creatinine kind of see where his kidneys are currently at at baseline. Cause assuming, you know, I don't really have anything, uh, on this gentleman now, I just think mm-hmm. it's a good idea to, to have that. Right. Like, sure. and let's say in an, the future, if I wanted to, Losartan can come in a combo pill of hydrochlorothiazide, which is a diuretic, but let's say I feel like eventually down the line, we're not getting enough coverage and we kind of want to maybe stay with the 
uh, renal protective uh, ARB, but he needs to be maybe on two medications to be, you know, most optimal. This is all hypothetical. Then I'd also want to have an idea of, you know, where his kidneys sat. And then I would want his electrolytes to check his potassium. And I think for me personally, as like a newer provider, having a baseline of everything is just kind of nice or ideal. So good. Yeah. So what can you also calculate for this patient before they leave? What can I calculate? Mm-hmm. It's kind of more of a preventive medicine type of thing. Oh, well, um, it's usually like, a well, 10 I think year you're referring risk. to like your, yeah, well, like I could calculate his ASCVD risk yeah. score because I have his, uh, his cholesterol, mm-hmm. but I thought that the ASCVD risk calculator wasn't like validated if they're younger than 40. Yeah. Theoretically, but I mean, you can still use it. Oh, okay. Cause I always want to plug myself in, but I'm not at the age range just, <laughs> just to see my, my 10 year risk, but yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, Kendall. It can be between ages. Age must be 20 and, and I'm, oh, 20 and 30, 20 and 79. Anyway. Yes. I could definitely calculate his ASCVD risk score, um, which I recommend everyone should have on their phone. It's a great app. And then I think that would also help too. just, you know, see yep. his risk, see if he needs anything else. And I'm not ignoring his trichl- or his uh, cholesterol, but I also, in the setting of getting ready to prescribe a medication for him at the end of this visit, most likely, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I think that the reinforcement of diet and exercise and then saying, Hey, I'm going to bring you back and we're going to kind of watch your blood pressure. But this is still, you know, a concern of mine. I want to re-reinforce, right? Like diet again, also addressing any barriers, like, you know, uh, let's see, do you work a night shift and you work shift work and you get the unhealthy snacks kind of like addressing maybe if I think he has barriers to that sure. or maybe they, maybe they don't know how to eat healthy. I feel like a lot of people are like, they're not, you know, they don't, they're unsure what contributes to the numbers that we tell them that we receive from the lab. Um, and then further down the line, you know, that's a discussion of not that much further, but a discussion of starting this gentleman on a statin most likely eventually. Um, but he's still young. So I'm like, you have, you can do a lot of this. I feel like with diet and exercise. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with you, especially because I wouldn't want to like start so many pills at one time because I hate Mm -hmm. polypharmacy, but uh, I agree with you that to reinforce everything, but if he's already been trying diet and exercise and failing, I think it would be worth it whether you want to uh, start or give him the low sartan, see how he does bring him back in like a month or two. I would say like a month and see how Mm -hmm. his blood pressure is doing. And at that time, if he's somewhat controlled in his blood pressure, then I would probably consider uh, starting him on like a statin or something because I already calculated his ASCVD and it was like 50%. <laughs> so he's pretty high. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's uh, true, actually. And I feel like too, you did say his... Uh... Oh, wait, no, no, never mind. So if his LDL was also, I think it's greater than 190, mm-hmm. then it's, you know, like, do not pass go do not collect $200 like your end criteria until proven. Yep. Uh, otherwise I think that's by like the AHA guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's also very, that's also important to pay attention to also. Yep. Well, yeah. And then so. getting his triglycerides to make sure he doesn't have like any familial mm-hmm. hypertriglyceridemia or whatever. Yeah. I like it. So then I think you're doing a great job. And just for our listeners out there, so update is a great resource to have. And, but sometimes you can take their stuff with a grain of salt because on their hypertension criteria and stuff, they are always saying to kind of start with like an ACE and ARB and then also throw uh, a non-dihydroperidine calcium channel blocker, such as amlodipine at them both at the same time. And I don't necessarily agree with that because I would hate to give them two pills and bottom them out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so I agree 100% with uh, Nafisa and starting out with one medication first, bringing them back in like two to four weeks and seeing how they're doing. And if their blood pressure is still not being controlled, then you can, and if they still don't have any like other underlying issues, then you can start with maybe with amlodipine and see how they do with that. Otherwise you might have to go to a, a thiazide diuretic with it to see how they do. Yeah. And I feel like too, for, um, ARBs, like they do you have a little bit, I guess, less of a side effect mm-hmm. of angioedema, which is like bigger, bigger, like an, like one of these scary risks of starting an, uh, an ACE inhibitor. Um, and then another thing just from kind of my short time in clinic is, uh, I guess like amlodipine, right. Can cause a little bit of, um, peripheral edema. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of just something when you're on your rotations and you're looking at a, you know, medication list and you're kind of like, oh, they're complaining of swelling. And, you know, you're, you're so many things are running through your brain about, you know, why, why, why are their legs swelling? You know, is it heart, heart failure? Like you run so many things run through your mind, but I was just reminded of that. Uh, maybe like I think last, last week is that, well, amlodipine can also make your legs swell. Peripheral edema is in fact a side effect of, um, or a common side effect, right? Like of, yeah, very the, um, and so that was a discussion that we had with that patient of probably stopping the amlodipine and putting them on something else. So kind of these little things that kind of forget our side effects, but, um, show up in interesting ways with your patients. All right. And just for, to continue our discussion on high blood pressure, um, yeah. Let's say that a patient, you're going to be starting them on blood pressure. They have a history of uh, uh, heart failure with uh, reduced ejection fraction. What do you think that they need to be on? Um, heart failure with, you said reduced ejection fraction? Yeah. Um, so like goal-directed mediated therapy, but blood pressure-wise, uh, like a beta blocker, um, diuretic plus or minus phrenolactone. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I had to pick specifically, um, but so if you're going to do a beta blocker, also something uh, I've learned that has stuck with me, but in the relation to someone who has heart failure, you want to do metoprolol uh, succinate, or I don't, I think I said that right. Um, and is that the long or tar- short acting? Uh, I believe it's the longer acting medication. The succinate is longer acting. Are you sure? Um, yeah, I feel pretty. I feel pretty strong about that. But you know, let me pull up uh, <laughs> Doctor Google. Um, actually, I'm just not even going to go in on Google. I'm just going to. The phone's you're, a lot you're, faster. You're right. You're right. I'm just messing with you. 
Okay, cool. I'm like, mm, <laughs> but I do have to. I have to correct myself because the non dihydroperidines. Uh, excuse me, I meant uh, dihydroperidine. Calcium channel blockers, amlodipine. Amlodipine. Yeah, non dihydroperidine would be like diltiazem or more of the cardio specific, like rate control drugs. Yeah. So I want to do my beta blockers for my heart failure people. So my metoprolol succinate. Um, I feel like starting medications like Coreg or excuse me, uh, Carvedilol. Um, I haven't uh, yet prescribed it by myself and my young uh, provider time, but I definitely feel like, I don't want to say I would leave it to once I've punted eventually, or like have referred a patient to, you know, a cardiologist. Um, but I would definitely say that it's a good medication. Again, good, especially when you're on your rotations or if you're in your family medicine rotation and you see something like Carvedilol, um, you know, uh, if there's another one that starts with a, a N, Nebi, Volol, like some of those, some of the alls um, on, but on your patient's medication list, kind of start thinking, oh, do you see cardiology? You know, because oftentimes they might be actually the ones who have put them on that medication. And it kind of is a more fruitful discussion with either you and that patient or you and your preceptor. Um, But uh, I'm not afraid to start it. I just uh, have not yet done so. Sure. But Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So let's say a patient comes in, has high blood pressure and has either diabetes or you notice like high protein, uh, protein creatinine ratio in their urine. Mm -hmm. Then what do you think that they should be started on? Uh, An ACE or an ARB. Good. Mm -hmm. Good. And patient with high blood pressure plus has AFib. What do you think they need to be on? Beta blocker. Beta blocker. And what was yes. those? What was <laughs> what was and possibly something else too? Um a fib. Mm-hmm. What would my people be on? So Not then, aspirin. No, they would be. Well, that's true. Oh yeah. Hmm. Uh, mm, I'm not sure. So then they would also be usually need a non-dihydroperidine calcium channel blocker, such as like cardizem. But oh, cardizem okay. is okay. a okay drug, but for rate control, however, always keep in mind that it also knocks out their blood pressure too. Mm. Like metoprolol okay. and stuff can, can knock down blood pressure because it just like reduces the the rate, you know? So mm-hmm. cardiac output goes down, that's mm-hmm. how that blood pressure goes down a little bit, but... Uh, but uh, cardizem or deltiazem really does like the cardio stuff plus decreases peripheral resistance too. So it's going to knock down my blood pressure. Hmm, that makes sense. That does make sense. Good. And then I guess also having to be a little bit less aggressive with some of the medications too, when you're dealing with someone who is, uh, I guess, more of like our geriatric population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I was kind of taught like, Sometimes it's okay to allow them to quote unquote, like live at a either higher or lower, depending on what we're specifically talking about yeah. uh, level, because you go and you give, you know, an elderly person, a higher dose of metoprolol. Well, now we're talking about, you know, bringing the pulse much, much lower and all these other things. So just something also to keep in mind. 
Very good. So, yep, 100%. You can, I always am okay with uh, elderly patients having higher blood pressure, especially in the hospital setting. And it freaks out nurses a lot. <laughs> but, uh, but if they have always been around like the 160s, then we allow like permissive hypertension unless they start being symptomatic. Then, then you want to trade it, try to treat them. But, uh, if they're not symptomatic and that's kind of where they run all the time, even with blood pressure methods, then just kind of leave it. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So that was a good little quick little case study for hypertension. So Nafisa, are you ready for the next case study? Yeah. So this is going to be on an inpatient setting, similar to a case that I had last week. Um, Fairly simple, no critical care needs. Uh, You're working in the hospital of services. You get an admit from the emergency department for a patient who presented with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. Um, Come to find out that she had also some chest pain, didn't radiate anywhere, didn't require any supplemental oxygen or anything. And uh, D-dimer was elevated like over 3,000. They did a CT pulmonary angiogram found that she had uh, multiple small PEs. I think it was subsegmental on the left lower lobe, but patient was hemodynamically stable. Um, they are admitting her to you because they contacted a specialist who stated that they should be started on a heparin drip. So you receive the patient for this reason and go ahead and take it away. What? It's kind of simple. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to edit that part out. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, okay. So patient admitted to us for the hospital service because, um, they want her started on a heparin drip. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm taking it away. I don't know what I want to do for this person. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Guide me here. Okay. So first thing you're going to do, obviously is go see the patient for yourself. Oh, yeah. Because we always can trust but verify for another physician, even the ER, because they're in all their infinite wisdom, they always give us crap. So uh, always go and interview the patient and find out for yourself the full story. So you go down there, uh, you see the patient in the emergency department after you put in your orders and stuff. She is not requiring any oxygen. She's satting fine. She's about 97% on room air. Pulse rate is 85. Respiration is about 16 a minute. Blood pressure is fine. 120 over 80, let's say. And uh, yeah, so you go in there and talk to her and find out your story that, uh, you know, she really wasn't doing anything, just all of a sudden having a new cough and no hemoptysis or anything, but just had some kind of like substernal chest pain, didn't radiate anywhere, uh, nothing really made it better or worse, and a little bit of shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion. Um, This lady is uh, 82 years old, and... Yeah, they they said the ER is going to admit me because of uh, clots in my lungs. Okay. Um, So you actually refreshed one of my questions, which was age. And I feel like age is also important to consider for multiple reasons. But um, when considering, you know, the risk versus benefit for like bleeding risk, 
mm-hmm. for her age. So then the visit mnemonic um, has bled. H-A-S-B-L-E is elderly, which she is definitely. Um, and then has bled is going to be right for kind of establishing the risk um, to have a six month complication, depending on her anticoagulated risk. Mm-hmm. Obviously, to my physical exam, but then starting was that low molecular weight heparin, which is what you said you were consulted for. And she's hemodynamically stable. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Does she have any? Um, do you have labs for her uh, kidney function on yep. hand? Yep. Okay. Uh, honestly, labs are uh, non remarkable, all within normal limits. Okay. And the reason why I'm thinking about that is that just wanting to make sure that what I'm thinking of prescribing or starting for this lady wouldn't affect like her uh, kidney function. Right. So like you can't do a molecular weight heparin if they have like a really bad um, renal impairment. Mm-hmm. Very um, good. So I can't, uh, but is a heparin drip going to be low molecular weight heparin? Oh no, that'd be unfractionated heparin. Correct. So would you have to worry about kidney function in general? No. Correct. But I would have to, I'd have to make sure she doesn't have a history of hit, which is real. I've seen it in real uh-huh. life. Yeah. Um, okay. I think that's what I'd go for then. So unfractionated heparin. Mm-mm. Yep. But say, let's say you follow the quote unquote expert advice. You put them on a heparin drip. And uh, again, this is because this was the patient that presented to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and so she's up on the floor. And so what's one of the first things you got to ask yourself? And this is, doesn't really matter what setting you're in, whether you're a clinic or inpatient or whatever, you should always ask yourself one question. And that is what? Why? Why? Yeah. Why is she developing these pulmonary embolisms? Or why is she just in general for any patient? Why is this happening to this patient? So, but in this setting, why is this patient having a PE? Um, so then I start to think of, um, I feel like there's also a mnemonic for this that I'm currently blanking on, but, and I'm blanking on the freaking word for this sedentary. So I feel like someone, she's, you said she's 82. So is she, you know, laying in a nursing home or another thing is, has she just recently had surgery? Mm-hmm, right. What are some other big ones that I feel like I probably missed? Infection, hormone replacement therapies. Is she a smoker? She's mm. very active because of like sun exposure for certain things. Um, any history of PEs or any history of DVTs have they had um, um, anticoagulation history in the past? Uh, Cancer. Mm-hmm. So, so anything that puts her, I guess, like it, right. Like in that hyper coagulable state, more or less. Correct. So. Yep. So besides the ER doing the CT angio of the chest, what test, what other tests can you do? Yeah. Like just, and this is an imaging study, but, uh, you know, it's not going to be geared towards their chest. It's going to be geared towards something else. I mean, you said imaging. So like I thought EKG, yep. but so the ER did an EKG up. and it was normal. Okay. So you could also do uh, ultrasound. Yeah. Well, ultrasound. Of Probably, what? Um, so I would do like a bedside, like uh, what am I thinking of? You could do a bedside uh, echo. For what? Well, then I start to think of like, you know, where you start to look at like the septum of the, of the heart D sign. It can mm-hmm. be indicative of um, strain that's on the heart. Good. Except that'll also be picked up on a CT angiogram. Touche. 
except for this, except for like an eceptal defect. So, but the only time you'd you be like worried a, about that is if they have a stroke for the oh the septal defect. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you'd have to do like a bubble study. Okay. I mean, yeah, you could do the the echo for the heart, but why are you concerned about the heart? The RV spiral of death. Right, but is she showing any signs of that right now? No, not right now. Okay. Right now she's pretty pretty stable. Good. You're on the right track for an ultrasound, just not in the chest. Like a Doppler, like for DVTs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's another test you can do. Um, so you're not wrong with the echo, but you're going to be more specific because those can be expensive and there's nothing that's not needed because mm-hmm. no signs of she's hemodynamically stable. She doesn't no history of stroke, no history of AFib in her life. So uh, you don't really need to look at the heart right now, but mm-hmm. you need to ask why is she having these pulmonary embolism? Like what's the cause? So I would go with a Doppler ultrasound to see if she has DVTs. And did she? So yes, this patient did have DVTs and you notice when you did a, uh, physical exam that, uh, she has two melanoma spots on each leg bilaterally. I said cancer. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. Yep. This patient I had did have that. So that's why you still, even if it's a focused one, you should never just do focus. You always got to do a full body exam. Yeah. At least on your did initial you- one. Did she know that she had uh, melanoma or no? She did not, but she's had, uh, when uh, I talked to her, she had a history of going to a dermatologist and having, quote unquote, something cut off, but she didn't know what it was. Okay. Over legs. And she's a very active old lady golfing all the time in the sun. So doesn't wear a lot of sunscreen and kind of looked like it. So she did have DVTs and she had melanoma on there. So... All right. So you have her on the heparin drip. I feel, oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say like real quick, I think that it also makes a really good point to, I feel like uh, sometimes when life gets busy and you're seeing a bunch of patients in clinic or you kind of already know what you're going to do with a patient, quote unquote, you know, like mm-hmm. more or less, if you get siloed into that, is that even just asking a full history, probably like, like you did, right. And bringing up the, not just like noting, oh, that looks like, had you not done the physical exam, you probably wouldn't have just got information that she's been to a dermatologist and she's had things cut off. So Correct. I think it's yep. just a good point to just kind of be thorough. Cause I feel like I've learned in clinicals and I'm still learning now that like, you don't really know what pieces are relevant to the puzzle piece until mm-hmm. you're kind of putting it together. So yep. I just thought, thought that was an interesting point to uh, make mention of. Okay. I'm ready for some more. Okay. So so she's doing fine the next day and still on the heparin drip and uh, all vitals are good. She's still hemodynamically stable and lab work is still within normal limits. No sign of hit or anything like that. So do you think this person needs to be in the hospital? Well, okay. Short answer. No, I feel like I would want to move her to uh, off the heparin drip. And then I feel like she can be working her way out of the hospital, but correct what am I going to do once I discharge her? So I was adding up her bleeding risk history of hypertension. Uh, yes. History of a stroke. No. Um, okay. She's elderly. She's already at two. I don't want to assume, but she's on aspirin. Uh, no, that's a negative. And then, uh, renal function or liver function. Yay. Both, or nay. Both good. Both. 
Both good. Okay. So her bleeding risk is two. So that's good. So calculating the has blood is good, but this patient needs the anticoagulation, right? Yeah. She does need the anticoagulation. Yeah. So I go back to this question. Does she need to be in the hospital? Um, no, because can't I just, but yep, correct. She doesn't even yeah, the hospital so because you're I can gonna, put her on, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like no, the low good. molecular weight heparin, right? You could, or what else could you use? A 10 a inhibitor, I think. Uh, so like a, a Pixaban. Yep. What you're going to be your dose of that? 10 milligrams BID I believe for, uh, let's see, 10 milligrams BID. I think they just stay on it for a week. So 10 milligrams BID or 10 milligrams, excuse me, twice a day for a week. And then do you cut that dose in half and then take her to five? So for DVT and pulmonary embolism prophylaxis for a Pixaban, it is two and a half milligrams BID. Okay. And uh, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. I lied to you. This is prophylaxis. So, but if they already have it, so you already have a DBT or PE treatment. So you're going to be five milligrams BID, mm-hmm. but you actually start at 10 milligrams BID for a week. And then you go down to five milligrams. Yep. So good job. So I, uh, I uh, did uh, river oxaban because or Zeralto, and that is 15 milligrams BID. And that is for 21 days. Okay. And then the other, the rest of the, so the 69 days after that for a total of three months or 90 days, then they go to 20 milligrams daily. So just kind of for my own gestalt developing, as mm-hmm. you can tell, it's very, uh, it's very, uh, it's very rough right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, what made you choose, uh, Roxaban versus a Pixaban? Any particular reason or? No, I just, cause I had, uh, use it like the day prior on a similar patient. Okay. Okay. Fair, fair um, enough. They're both expensive. They're both mm-hmm. extremely expensive drugs. Um, so anytime you can help out the patient, like we have coupons, we give them for like the first 30 days, basically. And there's other programs that they can use, but uh, otherwise then you can use the low molecular weight. So like Lovenox, as long mm-hmm. as their kidney function is good, but the person has to jab themselves all the time. Cause that is a shot. Mm-hmm. And most people don't like doing that. Um, otherwise, uh, they're on warfarin, and warfarin sucks because they're getting jabbed anyway to make sure that they're therapeutic in their INR and stuff. That's true. But warfarin is, did you say it's cheaper though? It is cheaper though, right? It is yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's why during cardiology, he said that he they have like a Coumadin clinic, right? Cause mm-hmm. warfarin's Coumadin. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Oh, like if we have all of these other agents, you know, just kind of like asking like what, what makes people choose like why go to warfarin? And he was like, it's just a lot cheaper. So it's what some people can actually afford. Yep. So, yep. So very interesting. So you transition this patient into onto the oral and uh, she tolerates her first dose very well. So then you discharge her. And you get all that stuff set up for her. So she's good. Perfect. So good job. So uh, about this patient. Yeah. Did she ever need to be admitted to the hospital? Do you think? Um, no, I mean, well, I You're think right. that's if you, yeah, I think if they had done or if not, they, I'm not trying to place blame on anything, but like if 
the Dopplers were also done like consult whoever you need to, but if they do the mm-hmm. Dopplers, they also see the DVT. She's completely stable. I've done has bled. I've done all kind of my other validated scores rolled out anything life threatening. Then, um, no, I think at that point I would have just, um, given her Zeralta. Okay. So, yeah. So like this patient is a classic example of, because we, at least on the inpatient side, we always have to kind of ask ourselves, like, am I doing something that this patient can't receive on the outside? So mm-hmm. what services do they need? And the ER, their job is basically to stabilize and then either admit the patient or get them out. Um, a lot of the times they just choose to admit the patient, which is whatever. Like I'm not here to argue with an ER physician. I never would because it's not my place. I'm not in the emergency mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just bite our lip and say, all right, cool. And do our job. But uh, this patient, let's say they came to you on the outpatient side, they wouldn't need to be like trans transferred to the, to the hospital for further workup because you could start them on the Zeralto for three months or depending on like their risk factor, like if they've, is this an unprovoked attack or, or, uh, or secondary offense, then they're going to need lifelong coagulation. I think that because the patient is 82 has most likely history of skin cancer, then I would, I, I put her on 90 days, but like she had a referral to dermatologist. She had a referral to her primary care doctor mm-hmm. uh, for further workup. And she most likely will need, and I told her this, that she will most likely need anticoagulation for the rest of her life because mm-hmm. she's like her five-year life expectancy isn't necessarily very high. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily like a bad deal for her, but, but it's a, uh, something that you could definitely treat on the out in the outpatient setting. That is true. I mean, I think that's something it's also important to like, um, well, that's assuming also though, too, if she had come to me and then I would be able to, I, I guess what's interesting is like from the outpatient setting, how quickly do I have access to getting her in to get the CT or, um, uh, how quickly can I get the Doppler of her legs, you know? So I feel like that's also something that I was expecting to maybe run into roadblocks, mm-hmm. uh, doing be, being, uh, outpatient, but, yep. um, it's good to, I feel like it's a good challenge because then it's like, okay, here's what I think is going on, but you know, it's kind of, it seems kind of weird to tell someone, but like, you know, for you to get worked up for this, like, it's going to be more effect, efficacious, I guess, for them to go maybe to the emergency room, finish the workup. Yep. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but. Absolutely. But yeah. uh, like, so you send your patient to the emergency department just to get like the rest of the workup. And, but she easily could have just been started on the Zeralto and discharged yeah. from there. Yeah. Really the only reason why this person was admitted was because the ER Age. physician had no, I had to uh, <laughs> talk to a quote unquote expert and recommended, uh, you know, the heparin drip and stuff, which teach your own, like, it's not going to hurt her. It's, you know, it's fine for, her, but, uh, she absolutely could have just been done with a PO thing and not have to suffer through another large hospital bill for being admitted for an extra day or two. Um, so yeah. Now, if the patient came in and was like hemodynamically unstable, had a PE that was very, I would say, um, 
moderate to severe causing the beginnings of like right heart strain, then absolutely like admit and put them on hyper drip, probably need to go to like the IMC or ICU for possible, uh, like if you can't keep their blood pressures up and stuff like that, then, you know, need to mm-hmm. start them on either, um, uh, a type of, uh, and, uh, I, uh, I can't even say the word right now. Um, like anti, are you trying to say anticoagulant? No, because you're on the heparin, but the for the keep the blood pressure up. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, like pressure, pressure, yeah, like a pressure support. Oh. Whether that's uh, um, one specifically for like the heart to keep it pumping, which is more of like what you're going to use. Um, mm-hmm. Like your what's that? Inotropes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I digress about that, but but that is, that is somebody who is appropriate for admitting because they absolutely need to be treated right then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then either get them to a higher level of care so they can get like a um, thrombectomy done or whatever they need. But yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. That stretched my brain. I haven't thought about uh, a PE. I'm not even going to lie in like uh, a hot second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like this. These are fun. Yeah um well this was fun i we hope that you guys like our uh our case studies and hearing me kind of ramble about i hope that i have given the audience enough time to think through their own thoughts while i am thinking through mine so (laughs) it's all right i like my case studies because i just think of uh a concept and then i just fly by the seat of my pants so yeah exactly no they're (laughs) good I, i i dig them so i'm here for it if our viewers don't like that, then I can definitely make a script and sound more professional, but I just like coming up and doing our thing. Cause that's kind of how it is in the real world. Anyway, you're going to be presented a patient and you got to think on your feet. Yeah, no, I think, and I think it's good too. I feel like if, you know, if I need to be streamlined for anything, then I will. But I also think that it's kind of maybe how things are also thought of in the real world. Right. Like, like you're just exactly, what you're saying you know if you're on rotations and you're like oh they did mention that does she need to be like has bled and you're thinking through all these things and i feel like until you really get maybe in a a flow if you will once you're working then you're constantly thinking through all these things absolutely that's uh me every day at work when these visits are supposed to be 15 minutes and i'm like well i need to take a full history i digress But alas. You did a good job. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, we'll come out with some more, make some more case studies for you guys. If there's any topics that you're kind of itching to hear about or that are kind of off the wall or something like that, or we'll just start banking our ideas, our idea book for some good cases, and we'll just keep throwing them at you guys. That's I think that's it for this episode. Yep. Nice and easy. All right. You guys have a good rest of your week. Be safe. Um, and we'll see you. All right. Have a good one, everybody.